Do you ever feel alone? Even in a crowd like this, where maybe there's 200 people in here, do you ever feel like you're the only one here? Do you ever feel like that even when you're with your spouse or with your children or with your parents? That your dealing and your struggles inside your heart are something that, you, that no one else but you can understand? You know, you think that even if you've got a great spouse, and I, I have a great one, that there's things that even you just can't put into words, or you're worried that they don't want to hear about it, or they can't bear, and you just keep it in, and you're alone. You know, sometimes I feel like that. I wonder if you feel like that too. I wonder if you're like me, and you, you're kind of a, you can be kind of an anxious person. Uh, I was reading recently, anxiety has skyrocketed, especially among people under 30 feeling this constant sense of unease in a world that is challenging and is a struggle. And I find that when I'm the most anxious, when I'm the most struggling, it's the most I feel like I'm alone, and that if anyone's going to have to deal with the problem, it's going to have to be me. I'm going to have to fix my own problems. Do you ever feel the sense that when you get like that, though, you just have the sense that you just can't fix your problems? That maybe you... Don't need, shouldn't, you can't do it by yourself. But then if you're like me, you wonder, how can I get help? I want to tell you today, if you're struggling with anxiety, the Bible talks a lot about it. If you're struggling with being alone, the Bible gives good news for you. You know, the Bible talks about worry and anxiety more than just about any other topic. The Bible talks more about worry than it does about immorality. And I hate to say this, if you're like, uh, for people like me, or maybe like you, I hate to say this, but there's not one time in the Bible where worry and anxiety are spoken about positively. Not once. Not once does God say, well, you really ought to worry about that. Never happens. Sorry. But God does say, but, but you know, it's not just don't worry, because you know what, then I worry that I'm worrying too much. Maybe that's just me. But you know there's good news for those of us who get in times of anxiety and times of struggle. And it's in God's word. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, to the fourth chapter. We're going to start at verse 14 and go through verse 16. There's only three verses today, but three verses of tremendous power and importance. And so it'll be on the screen, and I hope you'll hear this, the word of the living God. The writer of Hebrews says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So the good news is you and I are never alone. We're never actually really alone. Do you know we have a God who is never alone? We think, well, wait, God is God. But God, as Christians, we believe God exists as something we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that's early in a sermon to bring out Trinity. I give you that. 
but it means that God exists. All I'm saying this morning is it means that God exists in perpetual relationship. And did you know that God created us? Uh, God created us never to be alone. You know, God created the world, and you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and the Genesis 1 and 2, and we see the stories of creation, and we see God creates the world, God creates all the animals, all the plants, everything that exists in the world, and then creates the first person, Adam, and sticks Adam in the Garden of Eden, and looks down and says, this is almost good. It's all good, except the man, it's not good that he's alone, and so God takes the man and makes a helper, a woman named Eve, from his rib, And Adam, in one of the great poetic passages of Scripture, looks at Eve and says, Ah, this bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this shall be called woman, for she came out of man. See, at the very beginning, God created us to not be alone. And that would have been the plan, and that would have been good, and we would never feel alone, and we would never feel anxious, and we would never feel separated, except for some little thing. It's early in the sermon to talk about this, but... I'm going to talk about it anyway, just three letters called sin. I know it's not popular, it's not fashionable, but you and I are experts in it, so we might as well talk about it. And sin comes, right? God, lead, God, is, God sees that the serpent comes and leads Eve into disobedience. And immediately the trusting relationship between God and the earliest humans is broken. We know that. You've probably heard that before. But also the other thing is the relationship between Adam and Eve is broken. Maybe you didn't notice that. That one at suddenly when God confronts Adam and Eve and said, Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? Did you do that one thing? I told you you could do anything you want except one thing. And what's his response? Do you remember? He says, That woman you gave me. A little bit of a difference, isn't it? Now, any kids in here, or if you have kids or any kids in here, now, and I know you've never blamed your brother or sister for something, right? Never, right? Never. Never said, oh, oh, he made me do it. Oh, I I see you. It's like, no, I've never done that before. Uh, (laughs) And mom's like, yes, you have. Uh, Right? You've seen that. With your kids, you've done it. You've done it with your brother or sister, I've done it with my brother and sister. My brother's done it to me. He hits me and says, Sean started it, or vice versa. I can't remember. It's been a long time, but it's happened. And that's just a symbol of the division and the separation we feel. But you know, God, when he looks down and he sees the division and the separation in the world, he doesn't just look down and say, well, they'll just have to figure it out themselves. God comes to us. You know, God acts to heal relationships by being in them. In Genesis, we see that God calls a people called Israel. There are people after his own heart, and he, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's relationship. And when the people of Israel go astray from his will, he sends prophets to come and speak to them to bring them back into that relationship. And finally, in order to redeem all humanity around the world, you and me and everyone, he comes not in, more, not in rules, but he comes once again in relationship, sending his only son. And that baby we celebrate at Christmas, that perfect one that is fully God and yet fully human, comes to be in relationship to live a perfect life. And then when his perfect holiness comes up against God's 
God's perfect holiness comes up against our perfect unholiness, we kill him. But the power of God is greater than the power of death, and he is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. You see, that's a very powerful moment. Let's not just let that go by as kind of a perfunctory thing. Because he sits, he's in heaven. You say, well, that's a long way away. But where is he? What does the creed tell us? It says he is at God's right hand, right? He sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You know that, right? We have to say it more often for you all to remember it. I'm just, give me a nod if you've heard it before. Okay, good, good, good. I first nod was from someone at 9 o'clock too. So good who's here with us. So, so, so good. Uh, we, we've heard that before. And you're like, well, great. God's at the right hand of the Father. What is that supposed to mean? One, it means, the, it means uh, Jesus isn't gone and the relationship continues. You see, God is still in the business of healing us through relationships. God is still in the business of looking at all of our broken relationships, and you and I all have them, because all of our relationships are in some ways skewed, in some ways self-driven, in some ways self-centered, and he comes and he heals us with his perfect relationship. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is at God's right hand because he is what we call our high priest. Now that should make, that make some of you nervous, I know, right? Priests, we don't talk about priests, do we, very much in the United Methodist Church or in most of Protestantism. That's for those kind of Christians, not our kind, right? But here we are, the Bible talks about Jesus as high priest. I'll just do a quick thing. Priests are very simple. Priests are uh, someone who goes between uh, sinful humanity and perfect God and holy God. And so the, the people who led the Reformation in the 16th and 17th century that led to our Methodist movement down the road, uh, they believed that priests weren't certain people who, like, who led churches, but all of us who are believers in Jesus were called priests. Why were we called priests? Because we existed to stand between a perfect God and a world in need of him. And so for your friends and neighbors and people you know who don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are a priest you stand in between because you pray to God. You stand and you pray to God for them, don't you? I hope you do. I know some of you do. I'm looking around. I see Leon. I know he prays for people who don't know Jesus to the Father so that they would come to that relationship. And, and also, we are charged. We speak for God to them. We're priests. But Jesus is our high priest in Greek, it's our archpriest, our highest priest. And so, as we, as a group of God's priests, we are led by the one, the high priest, Jesus. Now, it's funny. Now, that's a, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it meant a tremendous amount to the people who heard this in the first century. See, the high priest was an office that was central to the Jewish faith. That's why this book is called Hebrews. It was written to the Hebrews, to the Jewish Christian people. And the high priest uh, was the one person permitted annually to enter into the very presence of God. You see, the Bible teaches that God's perfect holiness, our unholiness, makes us unworthy and unable by our own nature to go before the Father. And so, they, so when they, they had this, this uh, 
throne of grace, they called it. And so to protect the people, the unholy people, they built a room around it. And they put a curtain in front of it. And the curtain was inches thick. And you say, well, that's kind of powerful people trying to separate from the regular people. It may have been that, but it really wasn't. Because because, uh, you remember God speaks to Moses in Exodus and tells him, if you can't see me, if you see my glory, you will die. So, so the, the, the curtain was more like a shield for the people behind it. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go wearing the special vestments that had the names of all the families in Israel on it. And in their place, he would take and he would sacrifice an animal and take its blood up to the, the, the throne of grace in the Holy of Holies, go through that curtain... And there he would pray and he would offer for all the sins of all of Israel, starting with his sins first. And when he would be in there, in fact, they had a rope tied around his leg so that if he fell dead of a heart attack or something in there, they'd just pull him out because they couldn't go behind there. And the high priest would then, after some time in prayer, would come out And as I did a few minutes ago, he'd lift his hands to the people. He would look at them and he would give the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. That would be a sign for the people that God had heard their prayers and their sins had been forgiven. It was the best time of the whole year. That one time when they could know that that what separated them from God had been taken away. And so when they talk about Jesus as high priest, it's really kind of like that. Except it's different. They say that the scriptures tell us that at the moment that Jesus died, that veil, that thick curtain tore in two from the top to the bottom. No human could have done that. Tore in two because you see the presence of God was now available to everyone. Because that sacrifice they made on the Day of Atonement had to be repeated. Just like, you know, we try to make sacrifices of our own to try to, uh, we say, well, if I do this, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll do this as a sign that God will like me. And, and you do it, but then you find you've got to do it again. But that's not how it worked with Jesus. You see, Jesus, when he hanged and he bled on the cross, his blood, that perfectly divine, perfectly human blood that dripped from him, that caused him, that, that was from his, uh, from his very body, that blood was sufficient to cover all of our sins. God saw that. God received that. And it was a sign that God was a God of grace. That as the psalmist says, you behold trouble and misery and you take it into your own hand. And that sacrifice that was offered was offered one time. And it was enough for all the sins that had been committed before. And it was enough for all the sins that had been committed since, including all the sins that you and I will ever commit. All the sins our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will ever commit have been, the sacrifice has been made and you didn't make it. It was made for you. 
And so we find that Jesus is our great high priest after he made that sacrifice. Not for his own sins, he didn't have any. He was able to go and to make intercession with us for the Father. See, he was that great high priest, and he is the one with whom we can have a personal relationship. It's not as though it's like me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. No, no, he wants a personal relationship with every person who lives on earth. He wants them to know that you can come to me with anything because I am the perfect high priest that's a funny term, I know, but you know the, the regular high priests, they were all human, and they tried to say they were kind of divine, but we know they kind of weren't. And so that's why they had to sacrifice for their own sins. But Jesus had no sin. And so when he goes before the Father, he goes as perfect, he goes as sinless, he goes as divine, and he is able to speak to the Father. But guess what? Jesus is also human He's able to speak with us. You know, I know Jesus is so far removed in history, but you know Jesus existed as a real person like us. I love what Miss Jill shared with the kids today. You know, Jesus had all the problems you and I have faced, except he didn't commit sin. And so he is able to speak with us. He is able to connect with us as real people, as a real person. And he's the only one able to do that. Fully divine so he can talk to God and fully human so he can talk to us. And so think about that. If the perfect God is over here and the imperfect humanity is over here and it is separated, Jesus can stand in between, can stand in the gap. And so in moments of imperfection, in moments of struggle, Jesus stands there. And he holds our hand and he holds the hand of the Father and he brings us into perfect relationship and connection. And so the other good news this morning is when you have that kind of personal relationship, you don't have to have the right words. I say that just as almost an appendix this morning, but an important one to say that I know so many of us struggle with prayer and with connection with God because we say, well, I don't have the right words. You ever think about that? And if you don't think, oh, I never do that, just next time I'm going to call on you to pray during a meeting here. We've had this happen. We're like, oh, no, I, I, not me. I can't. I don't pray out loud. Don't talk to me. I'm not here. And I'm not shaming you because we, a lot of us feel that way. When I became a pastor, the hardest thing for me to do was not to preach but to pray. Because we think, well, if we're going to talk to a perfect and holy God, we've got to have the right words. We've got to say the right things. We've got to not mess up. But I love what he says there. He says, therefore, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. You know that word boldness, it does mean boldness without fear, without struggle, without fear of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in Romans 8. But it also has an ordinary meaning. If you were to use that Greek word that they use for boldness in ordinary conversation, it would also mean plain spokenness. We can speak to God plain spoken. We don't have to have the big words. We don't even have to be like, Lord, sir, please help me. Please, Lord, sir, don't strike me down. Which is the way a lot of us pray. 
But because of Jesus, we can have the confidence, we can have the boldness to be plain spoken, to talk to him like we talk to our very best friend. Because that's what he wants to be, our very best friend. And you know, sometimes maybe we don't have words at all. Maybe just, the soar, maybe just our sighing spirits are enough in our times of struggle and need. And maybe they're not here today, but they may come. You know, I'm going to end with a story for you. I read this story from the Scottish theologian uh, J.B. Torrance. I know that that's not a promising beginning to a story, but it's good, I promise. Torrance tells a story that he was uh, lecturing some years ago at Fuller Seminary in Southern California. And so while he was there suffering for Jesus, he had a guest house on the beach on the Balboa Peninsula. Now some people have got to work hard at it. But uh, he, uh, so he said one of the benefits he had was he got to go walk down the beach every day. And so we'd go walk the beach, and one morning he saw an older gentleman who was clearly struggling. Have you ever seen someone you can just tell when you see them that they're not having a good day? And he saw that guy, and he just asked him, what it, what's going wrong? And he said, the gentleman told him, said, my, my wife is in the hospital dying with cancer, and there's nothing I can do about it said, I grew up, my dad was a minister, and I grew up in the parsonage, and, and I grew up in a godly family, but you know, I just haven't had much to do with church since I was 18, and that was 60 years ago, and now I just, I don't know what to say to God. And Torrance said, what do you think I told him? Do you think I gave him five easy steps on how to pray, or gave him, said, if you do this, God will hear you? He said, No. I told him that we serve a God that is not conditioned by the words we use, but a God who wants to hear us as we are. And said, you are, God hears your sighing and your groaning as, as you're speaking even now. And he hears your prayer. He saw the man the next day, and the man said, would you come and speak to my wife? And Torrance went and spoke to his wife. And he said, I told her about a God who loved her, a Jesus who wanted to care for her and wanted to be in personal relationship with her. And a few weeks later, he said, I got a letter from the man who said that his wife had died safe in the arms of Jesus. See, friends, this is powerful stuff. This is the real deal. This is the real deal of of a God whose care and whose love and whose tremendous grace is available for you. But we gotta reach out. We gotta be willing to be dependent. You see, part of our being alone and feeling alone is we feel like we gotta do it all ourselves. And folks, I don't think that works. We need some help. And the good news is that today Jesus is waiting for you to come to him. If you don't have have in your spirit that personal relationship with Jesus where you can go to him at any time, today is a day that Jesus wants to come in and come into your life as your Lord and Savior. There's no better day than today. And And you know what? You don't have to have a lot of fancy words. You just have to say, help me, Jesus. Come into my heart, Jesus. Or whatever you say, and, 
And I believe that when we pray that and we turn our heart to Him, he's, He is waiting and knocking to come in. And He'll do that. And He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And so if you, and maybe you've made that decision, but it's been a long time. And you say, I feel like I'm so far away, I'm so lost. The same is for you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sins. Bring me closer to you. Wherever you are, wherever you are in this life, he's waiting for you. He comes to be with you. And he's the one who says, come to me. Wherever you are, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.